All right. Um, welcome, everybody, to Booksmart Lesson 4, discussing halacha, Jewish law. I just want to start off with a story. So just speaking about the law, um, one time there was a, a child, which he's on the beach with his family, and the, big, the black flag is up, indicating that there are sharks and no one should swim in the water. The boy really wants to go swimming, and... And his mom tells him, um, you are not allowed to go swimming. He is holding him back, says he cannot go swimming. And he's very upset. And that's that. Um, a bit of 15, 20 minutes later after this whole, um, um, this whole tantrum the kid has, his dad um, takes off his shirt and starts walking towards the water and jumps into the ocean. So the kid goes running to his mom and says, Mom, are you not stopping dad from going to the ocean because he's big and he can fight the sharks? So the mom responded and said, no, I'm not stopping him because your dad has life insurance. <laughs> All right. Um, That's halakha. All right. Um, that is not halakha. So what is halakha? So halakha actually means... Um, means the path the pathway um that would mean that would be the the translation of halakha so what is halakha what exactly is it so i want to go through where this course is to be split into two parts those which have the student book we're holding on page 148 um i'm going to try to split this course this this class into two sections number one we will focus on what halacha, the how halacha came to be, the code of Jewish law, the evolution, because it's a whole process. How do we get from the Talmud, which we spoke about last week, to halacha, what we're speaking about today, which is a evolving, um, which is an e evolving body, and how someone could relevantly be become part of the body, and how and how some opinions get cast aside. That will be all discussed in part one. And then part two, we are going to take a certain principle in Jewish law and bring it through how we can learn out, but through that principle, how you can bring that into Jewish law and bring out many different ideas throughout Jewish law. So over here, is our map. As you see, the halacha goes through the number four, or right there, which the halachic period really starts from, one second, what is it telling us here? Okay, so we're going to be discussing from, this really starts, halacha period starts from the time of, all this really starts from the time of the Mishnah, which is putting us in about 300 BCE. And let us begin. So, yeah, so I'm going to get through everything. Um, regarding the slideshow, I am really um, the first half of the class. I'm really not going to use it much because I'm going off script. All right. So let us begin. So 
Halacha starts off, if we, if you remember, when we spoke last week, we discussed the Talmud, and um, we discussed the Talmud and the Mishnah. So we said that before the Mishnah, the Mishnahic era, Judaism was Sanhedrin-based. So there was no minority opinion. The majority opinion was kept. Minority opinion was discarded of. Then the Sanhedrin gets disbanded. This is the Supreme Court. So now, after the disbandment of the Sanhedrin, there is a need to transcribe everything. And that's why Rabbi Yehuda, the prince, he writes the first code. He writes the first code and he writes the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a code in the sense that in a sense that he brings all the opinions of everything, and there are mechanisms to know what is the law as a result of that code. So sometimes, very rare, you will say, very rarely, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, he will say the halacha is like someone specific, but usually... Um, the second opinion, if there's ever two opinions, it would the halacha, the law goes with the second opinion because there is a there is a um, a principle in Hebrew, it's called basar basra, which we'll get into later. It means you go like the later opinion. The reason for that being um, if two rabbis lived in the same era, one of them a bit later than the second one, if the later one argues with the earlier one, he probably had more information because time, through the passage of time, um, information gets more expansive. So the later rabbi probably has more information than the first rabbi. So if he argues on the earlier rabbi, this is within his time frame, his time period, then we'll go like the later rabbi because he probably had more information and he was better informed. And that's why he made that decision. So there are ways within the Mishnah to get through the to it is a code to get through the halacha and that's why the mission was made it was made for people it was written down in order to be a code um it was written down in order that there could be one just book that all jews have and this is the law and that's it then comes the talmud the talmud is a commentary it's a commentary on the mishnah so the talmud what's a, a commentary there's a lot of discussion the Talmud is never intended to be a code. Talmud will give you 18 theoreticals based on the Mishnah and what would be the case for that. So that's not a code of Jewish law. That's more discussion. Then there are certain books um, throughout history called, so those are two, I'm just going to break down. That is two types of books you have throughout history. One is a code of Jewish law. Then you have the commentary. You have number three, which would be a responsa, which we're, I'm going to go through throughout history, how this all worked. A responsa, a responsa would be that, which I'll, you know what, let's show that for a minute. Let's go back to the Talmud. So the Talmud ends up being a, on the original code of Jewish law, the Talmud ends up being the commentary. So that's, after the era of the Talmud, there's a buffer zone of about 50 years. This buffer zone is the compilation of the Talmud. The, and it's um, and it becoming the bedrock of Jewish society. 
And then it starts an era of called the Gaonim. So the Gaonim, they wrote most of their texts in Arabic. Most of the Jewish people at the time lived in Iraq, lived in Babylon, um, and they were there before the Arabs, talking about returning stolen land. We were there first, just kidding. Um, they were in Iraq, and then there was a yeshiva in Pumpadisa, which, which won the cities. I think it's still called Pumpadisa or something sim similar there today. The yeshiva there lasted north of 800 years, consecutive, yeah. No, and it's a city called Pumpadisa. Um, so during the Gaonim period, there is <clears throat> Babylonia the, is falling apart because there's a lot of conflict and Jews are starting to get spread out everywhere, which we'll get into. And then starts the era of the Rishonim. So within the era of the Rishonim, the Rishonim are, means the first ones, they there was a rabbi, when it comes to Jewish law, this is a, a big person. There's a rabbi called the Rif. The Rif realized something. He realized it's impossible to, when you're learning Torah, learning Talmud. Talmud, so you, you had the Mishnah is a code, but it's so much more expansive throughout the Talmud. So now, how are you supposed to take that and learn how to live your life? No one's going to go through all of the commentary from the beginning of the Talmud and go through everything to figure out all the details. So the Rif, his name is Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi. He was, he lived in the city of Fez, um, Morocco. And he comes up with a, a plan how to make the Talmud simple. So he wrote a book, what some people call the miniature Talmud. Um, and so right here, I just want to show you. So I have all the books I'm going to be talking about, I'm sitting with. So right here is my Talmud, what we showed you last week. So this is how a normal page of Talmud looks. Now, I'm going to show you a page of the riff. The riff. The riff, yes. Let's find them. Right here is a right here is how the riff looks. Pretty much looks like a Talmud. Same thing. Looks like the same, same thing. So nowadays it's found within the you buy a set of Talmud, it'll be found in the back. It used to be printed separately because people don't have money for both necessarily at the same time. So you brought a tractate of Talmud, you got just the Talmud. You could buy a, a set of riff. Just the riff younger than... than the Talmud. He's he lives in the end of the Gaonic era, which is he's about a thousand years ago. And what did riff stand for? Rabbi Yitzchak of Fez. So he writes. That's called a digest. It's the spark notes of the Talmud. He takes almost no, none of his own writing. He has a little bit. This one doesn't, this Talmud I, I own doesn't have it. Some Talmuds actually will highlight when he writes his own words. He didn't really write much. He just deleted, wrote the Allahs. What is the bottom line of the Talmud? So he deletes, um, I would say nine tenths of the Talmud and he comes up with a digest of spark notes of the Jewish law. 
So there was a, someone in the time, his name was Rabbi Zrachia Halevi. He was 19 years old and he wasn't going to have any of this. So he wrote a book called the, the Ma'or. His book was called the Ma'or and he asked questions on the riff. This is a 19-year-old kid. The riff is the leader of the generation. A 19-year-old kid writes a book refuting a lot, a lot of times the riff says such and such is a law in his digest. He'll take, there's four opinions. He'll choose an opinion and say, this is the law. Rabbi Zerach Yalevi argues with him. Then comes a sage later on. I'm sure you all heard of him. His name was Ramban, the Nachmanides. He writes a book called Melchemes Hashem, the God's, God's battle, God's war. And he answers all the questions the Ramban, Nachmanides, he, left, he lived a lot after the Rif. Um, he was not a student, but he, he considered himself like a spiritual student, and he writes a book answering most of the questions that Rabbi Zerachia Levi has. And so that is a type of book that's called a digest of Talmud. So that is that was the first code so it's not a code, it's, it was a digest of the Talmud. What's the problem with that? The problem is, it's great. You have the whole Jewish law in one space. And it's only law. There's no other. All the all discussions taken out, it's just the law the way it is. The problem is, how do you know where to look? The Talmud, because it's a commentary, it gets, it's really all over the place. For instance, just the way the Mishnah was made, there is a Masechta, a tractate of Talmud called Kiddushin. Kiddushin speaks about getting married. Part of getting married, you write a ksuba, you write a contract. So all of a sudden it gets into contracts. So now there's a whole bunch of laws of con Jewish contract law, which finds itself within the middle of tractate of Kiddushin. So for someone who's learned he knows, great, I'm going to look in Kedushin because I have a question. Maybe it's there, maybe it's not there. He knows a few places to look. But then comes a simple Jew. This simple Jew, he says, you know, my mom, my dad did not teach me Talmud. I didn't go to yeshiva. I have a question. Where do I look? So he doesn't know where to look in the rift because it was just a digest. It was with, written within the order of the Talmud. So the rift lives a very long life. He lived to his 90s. Um, when he passed away, he had a son, was a very big sage as well. His son was a young man in his 70s and everyone was expecting for him to give over the to give over the academy to his son but instead he gives his the yeshiva over to someone by the name of the Rimegash. The So the son drops out of the picture. So, yeah. And this Rimegash was a man he was 28 years old. Um, he gives it over to him. Maimonides considered himself a student of the Rimegash. Maimonides himself was not a student of the Rimegash. Rather, Maimonides' father, Maimon, Rabbi Maimon, was a student of the Rimegash, and the Rambam, Maimonides, was a student of his father. And he considered himself a spiritual student of the Rimegash. And a lot of, a lot of times, Maimonides will refer to him as such. So... We have, this is the first digest. So this is actually not the first digest. So there's the Gaonic period, which there's the Gaonic period, which I said earlier, a lot of it was written in Arabic. They're writings. That's why most of it we don't have because it was never translated properly. And then Jews stopped speaking Arabic. 
and then never got translated and just got lost. But there were digests at the time as well that were written, but they're not. The Rif is the first major digest, which is very famous within Jewish law. So then comes Maimonides. Unfortunately, I didn't have, in my house, I have a set of Maimonides, but I didn't have the proper book. So I, I don't have to show it with me. Maimonides does something revolutionary. He decides that he is going to take Jewish law and he's going to be the first one to make a code in Jewish law of just Jewish law, nothing else, and in order, not in the order of the Talmud. He's going to have books. He, he splits it up into 14 books. Book one is called Mada. These are all the mitzvahs that have to do with our hearts. For instance, or our heads. For instance, to believe in God is a mitzvah. So that's in the first book. You know, you want to know this, the mitzvah, how what it entails to believe in God. You have to check out Maimonides' first book. You want to know about marriage. He has a book called Nashim, which means women. It's all the, all the laws about women are found in there. If you want to know how to get married, go to that book. He has the, the first part of the book is, is um, the first part of the book deals with that. You want to know how to get divorced. That's the next section. The next section of the book. Your, your friend messed you over in a contract. It's actually, there's a daily st study program of Maimonides. So right now we're actually dealing with that. We just actually finished yesterday. Um, there's, there's the book of acquiring. The, the laws of buying and selling. Go over there. So Maimonides puts the, makes this compilation. He wrote it in Hebrew. It's actually his only work he wrote in Hebrew. The rest he wrote in Arabic. And he told people, because he felt very important that the whole entire Jewish people uses this to know the Jewish law. And he actually writes in his, he writes in his um, introduction, he says something very interesting. He writes, he calls it the Mishnah Torah, which means Deuteronomy, which means the repetition of Torah. He says, this is the repetition of Torah because after I write this, no one will need the Talmud anymore. You'll be able to just learn scripture and go straight to my book, scrape out the, skip out the Talmud, you know exactly what to do. So there was one problem with Maimonides. He didn't write any, he doesn't write any um, sources. And there's actually a story that one time, there's actually a story that one time he, um, someone came and asked him a question about something he wrote and wanted to know what the source was. So he gave an answer. That person checked it up and said, oh, wasn't it? So he thought maybe it's somewhere else. And it wasn't the right place either. And the person left empty-handed. And as the person left, he remembers that it was in like some obscure place of the Talmud that spoke about it. And that was his source, but it was already too late. And he couldn't run after the person and he couldn't tell him. And at that point, he regretted, he said he regretted that he didn't write, didn't write his sources and he wanted to work on that. In the end, he never did. And other, other um, opinions work on it, but he has no sources. So... Maimonides writes his book. It's meant to be the last book of Jewish law. This is it, and that's all. Keep on going. There's a problem. Since he didn't write his sources, Jews don't know how to follow, don't, aren't willing to follow. In Judaism in general, there is no, this is something very interesting, very important, there is no such thing as a chief rabbi. 
What do I mean by that? So there is a chief rabbi of Israel. There is a chief rabbi of Israel or any other um, country, but there's no such thing as a chief rabbi, meaning that no one rabbi has authority over another rabbi. Rabbis have, there's, since the Sanhedrin, the high court has been disbanded, there is, Judaism is not centralized. So if you have a question, you go to your, you go to a, um, your, your rabbi and you ask him and he'll give you an answer. So Maimonides tries making, tries making Judaism centralized. The problem is no one's going to listen to him. The rabbis of his time, none of them are going to listen to him unless they have, unless they have, um, no, no rabbi, no one rabbi's listen unless they have the sources. And since they have the sources, it ends up being this massive discussion. Ironically, Maimonides is the one book, aside from the Talmud, that has the most commentary on it, on any other book. This is meant to be the final book, and it has the most commentary of any other book. So Maimonides writes his code. Um, and then, a little bit later, comes a rabbi named the Rosh. The Rosh lives, the Rosh lives in the end of this era of the Rishonim which means the first, after there's a Gaonim, the Gaonic period, then there's the Rishonim period. The Rosh writes another, he writes another digest of the Talmud. So the difference, there's a major difference in how the Sephardi rabbis learn and how the Ashkenazi rabbis learn. At this point, there's a major split in Judaism. There are the Ashkenazi Jews, which are living in Christian-occupied countries, have a lot of autonomy to communicate with each other. You have the Sephardi Jews living in Muslim enemy territory. Muslim occupied countries have a lot of uh, a lot of autonomy to communicate with each other. So what happens? A rabbi has a, a, a certain question comes up by in a certain community. The rabbi doesn't know the answer, so he's going to send out what they would he would he'll send out the the question to another rabbi, and you have all these rabbis communicating with each other. For all we know, there's these conferences going on discussing every, all these rabbis discussing all the different questions and but there's there's slowly but surely there is a split happening within within Judaism because you have Sephardi rabbis answering questions in their own way and then you have these massive communities all parroting each other and one rabbi says that's what you should do and they respected that rabbi Jews respected him so they continue if Ashkenazi rabbis telling Jews to do something else. And also, Sephardi and Ashkenazi personality traits are very different, very possibly because of where they live. The Sephardim are very pro-code. They love having code. They love knowing exactly what to do. The Ashkenazi communities love autonomy. So they don't want, they don't want any one rabbi saying, this is how you do in this case, you want to do in that case. Because as I said, once the Sanhedrin, once we don't have a high court, halacha is really, the Torah is left to us to understand. The last part of Torah, which every single Jew, there's a common consensus, is a Talmud. So you could take the Talmud and you understand it. And now I could come up and say, you know what? I could extrapolate from the Talmud that you're allowed to eat a cheeseburger. I'll get laughed out. If I don't have a great source, I'll get laughed out of the ballpark. Nobody cares. Like, I won't be anything. So what ends up happening is, who gets status? Who do we still remember? Are the rabbis which had status because their opinions are widely accepted, they wrote it down. So 
in the Ashkenazi circles, you have Rashi. He writes down a commentary on the Talmud. And he, through how he writes, you're able to see what his halachic understanding of certain things was. Yeah, Tosafot. Tosafot is a whole back and forth way of learning the, to- the Talmud, com- making comparisons and bringing out different things. And you have this whole Ashkenazic way of learning, which is not written in any code. And it's, it's not really being encompassed. My modernist doesn't really have access to it. Um, the Rifs was actually a little before the time, um, actually about the same time as Rashi. But so you have this all going on. So the Rosh lives at the end of this era. So the Rosh was a hybrid. Why was he a hybrid? He was a student of someone named the Maharam from Rottenburg. Rottenburg is a city in Germany. He, basically the king of Germany, arrests the Maharam from Rottenburg and he wants the Jews to pay 20,000 marks to release him. And the Maharam from Rottenburg, he says as follows. He says, um, you know, if we, if you guys, if you guys pay the ransom and you release me, they're just gonna they're gonna arrest the next guy. It's better you just don't 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 release me. Keep me as is. So he ends up sitting in prison, I think, for 14 years, wow. and he dies. Wow. And then they have to wait another 12 years before they could get his body. Um. So the Roche was his was his student. The Roche realized. One second, let me finish this. And the Roche realizes he's next. So he runs away to he runs away to Spain. So. And that's when, and they realize he's a great rabbi. And so they elevate him. They make him a rabbi of the academy. So the Rosh is at the back of the Talmud right here. It says Rabbeinu Usher. The acronym for that is the Rosh. He writes another digest of the Talmud. The difference of him is he includes all the Sephardic, all the Ashkenazi rulings from Tosafot, Rashi, and other Ashkenazi rabbis at the time. So he is a hybrid. Um, all right, let me uh, let me take questions if anyone has. Yes. Is the Rosh Ashkenaz? The Rosh was born Ashkenazi, and then he moves to Spain to run away from the Germans to move to the Sephardi community. So then he wrote as a separate. Yeah, that's, that's probably why he wrote a digest, which was more of a Sephardic thing to do, but he added all the Ashkenazi rabbis, which he had access to all of that information. But with the Ashkenazim, the Ashkenazim rabbis didn't agree with each other either. Correct. Correct. But then... I mean, right now, until today. Yeah, I'm, get, I'm going to get into that. Even within the Hasidic movement, they were all part of it. Yeah, so let me, let me get into all that. Hasidic movement's different because that's not halachic. That's not about halachic. That's not about halachic rulings at all. So that'd be a whole other discussion. Um, any questions in Zoom? What does Rosh stand for? Rabbi, Rabbi Usher. Rabbi Usher? Yeah. I have yes. a question, David. Yes. Uh, on this slide and other slides and other discussions, it talks about the Talmud and Midrash filled with moral and philosophical teachings. It, isn't Midrash part of the Talmud? Why do, why do you separate it out? Why do they talk separately about it? Um, the, so, yeah, I'm sorry I'm just stuck on this slide, by the way. It's okay. It's just that I'm off, I'm off uh, really off script, and I wasn't sure... I deleted actually a lot of the slides, but I wasn't sure how to continue deleting. So I just figured let's not use it just in case I want something. Actually, that this slide I want right now. Okay. So basically, basically the midrash is a way of learning above over the, the Talmud is one way of learning, the midrash is another one. So you have a lot of midrash in the Talmud, but they're actually separate because two 
ways of learning Torah. So Midrash is just a way of learning. It's not really a separate... It's, it's no, not necessarily a book. Correct. But is there a book of Midrashic teachings? Or? Yes, there is a book of... It's called The biggest book is called the Midrash Rabbah, the Great Midrash. But then there's a lot of, a lot of other ones. But the, the, the book actually, ironically, with the most Midrash within it is the Talmud. All right. So what happens is, by the way, um, a really great, a really great page to turn to. Um, a really great page to turn to is one fifty-eight. It's color coded. So basically, what happens is, so we spoke about um, Maimonides having a code. Then there's digest. That's pretty much what we've been talking about. Now, with those two things, you have something called, and then there's a third thing called responsa. What happens? Um, I'll give you just a good example of, and we spoke about commentaries. We didn't speak about responsa yet. So let me speak about responsa, and then I'll get back into the history of uh, the Jewish law. Basically, I'm going to skip a bit. So what blessing do we make on donuts? Anyone? What bracha would you make on a donut? As opposed to other types? As opposed to... The shakal? Not no, not a mozi, not chakol. zonot. Oh, me zonot. And mizonot is what we make on stuff made out of wheat, which are not met, made for meals. But there's actually in Jewish law, there is an amount how much you need to eat. But donuts will always. Sometimes you could eat too many pretzels and have to make hamotzi. By the way, but with donuts you'll always have to make mizonot. So that sounds pretty straightforward, right? So actually, look at this right here. So all this, I'm not expecting you to be able to read this, but I, uh, I, I'm not expecting anyone to read this and even understand it. This is a, just a rabbi, which he was wrote a, he wrote an article about. He writes an article about um, about donuts and Hanukkah. So he writes all of his sources. So this is just him extrapolating the sources why a donut will always have that bracha. So that's called responsa because if a rabbi, how did rabbis have, how did rabbis become famous and how did they, why are they generational rabbis? It's because they wrote responsas. They had a they had an answer. Someone asked them a question, a lachic question. They would answer it and explain why they would say the halacha, they would say the answer, but then they write it down and explain why they got to that answer. So the one one of the responses I've learned a lot was the third Chabad Rebbe. He was also the chief. He was also one of the leading authorities in Russia, the Tzemach Tzedek. So he had a response called Tzemach Tzedek. That's he's named after that. And he would write. He would write a lot of the. He would get a lot of questions. There's a lot at that time. There was a big deal of husbands running away from their wives, and disappearing, and then the wives couldn't get remarried because they never got legally divorced, and. He has a lot. He has a lot of questions like that. So he would answer the question, but then he would write down how he got to that, how with this scenario, and he would get through his whole thought process throughout that. So that is a that's responsa. So you have that's going on throughout history, and a lot of us getting the code which we have today is based on the responsa. So the the code of Jewish law is ever growing. So then, so back to let's go back to the history. So now. You have the Rosh. The Rosh writes his digest. Comes his son. 
right over here. I have a book called the Torah and Shulchan Aruch. So the Torah, he is the Rosh's son. He writes a book, he, the Torah, the, the Torah. Is, it, it, um, he writes a book called the Arba Turim, which means the four sections. He splits Judaism in four sections. He differs from Maimonides. Maimonides discusses everything in Judaism, even what's not relevant. The Torah only discusses what's relevant in modern day halacha. So he's not going to speak about the temple. And he speaks, splits it into four sections. The one the first book is called Orachayim, which is anything of our day-to-day -day lives. Everything's in that first book. Second book is Yoradea, which I'm holding here, which is anything's about what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do in regards to food, for instance. This I have in my house because this is from when you learn Smicha. It's the books, it's the laws of kosher over here. Um, he writes, he, so he, that's the second book. Third book is Evan Ezer, which is all discussions about marriage. Divorce is all in that book. Fourth book is called Choshen Mishpat, which is everything about money. You ever have a, uh, you have an argument with your neighbor about money, it will be, you could find it in Chosh and Mishpat. So the tour looks like this on the inside. Mm -hmm. So you, in the middle is the tour. He writes, he brings down everything. Most opinions are brought down here from the Talmud, from the most opinions from the era of the Rishonim is brought down over here and it has everything in it. So now he writes a code, but it's still not clear who is the halacha like, who is the law like. So comes a man, his name is the base, base Yosef. He writes, his name is Rabbi Yosef Cairo. He lives, he's born in Spain. He moves to Tzfat. He lives in Israel. In Tzfat, and he starts writing a code. So what he starts doing is, he starts writing a commentary. So he is, the Beit Yosef is right here. All of this is him. He starts writing a commentary called the Beit Yosef mm -hmm. on the Torah, and he's going to tell us what is the halacha, what is the law like. So what does he do? In Judaism, is majority rule. So there's three big rabbis we spoke about. We spoke about the Rambam, Maimonides. We spoke about the Rif, Rabbi Yitzchak of Alphas, and the Rosh, the Torah's father. So he takes those three, the big three, and he sees whenever there's an argument, he just does majority rule. What's the problem? Two of them are Sephardi rabbis. One of them is a hybrid. So this is really not encompassing Ashkenazi teaching. So there's a lot of arguments. There's another Jew at the time. His name is um, the Rema, Rabbi. The, the, his name was the Rema. His name was Rabbi Moshe Israelish. We're going gonna, gonna to show the video about him soon. He is writing a book, a similar book, taking the tour, writing Ashkenazi law. And then as he's about to finish, they bring him the Beit Yosef's book. So now, and now we have two. So I want to show the video and then I'll continue. So let me go to the video. This, this is not a JLI video. I found this on YouTube, but it's a great video. In 1492, the mass expulsion of Jews in the Spanish Inquisition created waves of refugees throughout Europe and the Middle East. As Sephardic Jews from Spain intermingled with Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe, people became confused about which traditions and rules to follow. Two rabbis rose to settle the matter. Though these two men were from different traditions and never even met, their conflict and collaboration defined Judaism for half a millennium.
The Jewish oral tradition represents the collected wisdom of rabbis over thousands of years, interpreting the Torah, arguing, and building consensus on what it means to be Jewish. These rules, called halacha, cover everything from prayers and festivals to dietary and marriage guidelines to procedures in court. They defined and shaped the entirety of Jewish life for millions of people. But by the start of the 16th century, the tradition was in trouble. Disputes between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, arguments between rabbis about the correct opinions, an explosion of new interpretations of the Torah, and a rise in spiritualist philosophies like Kabbalah meant that nobody could agree which opinions were right or which rules to follow. In 1522, Rabbi Yosef Karo decided to fix this. Born in Spain four years before the expulsion of the Jews, Caro eventually settled in Sfat, a holy city near the Sea of Galilee. A mystic and a scholar, Rabbi Caro spent 20 years compiling 32 different Jewish authorities into a catalog of Jewish law that he called the Beit Yosef. When there was disagreement, as there frequently was, he went with majority rule between the three most prominent scholars, the Rif, the Rosh, and the Rambam. Although the Beit Yosef was a work of astonishing scholarship, it was also very, very long. So Rabbi Caro created a summary that listed the decisions from the Beit Yosef, defining once and for all what he called the fixed final law. It was like spark notes for 2,000 years of Jewish oral tradition. Rabbi Caro called it the Shulchan Aruch, Hebrew for a set table. While many Jewish scholars embraced the brilliance and utility of the Shulchan Aruch, a fierce backlash arose. Prominent rabbis decried Karo for streamlining Jewish law and disregarding the disagreements that were a central feature of halacha. Others protested that Karo's choice to go with majority rule between two Sephardic rabbis and only one Ashkenazi rabbi strongly favored Sephardic interpretations, a serious problem for Ashkenazi Jews who were not willing to give up hundreds of years of unique customs. Luckily for Ashkenazi Jews, Rabbi Karo wasn't the only scholar working on a unified code of halacha. Rabbi Moses Israelis was a brilliant scholar of Torah who founded a yeshiva in Krakow, Poland. He too recognized that the oral tradition had become overly confusing. While Rabbi Karo was writing the Beit Yosef, Rabbi Israelis was compiling Ashkenazi halacha into a book titled the Darke Moshe. He was nearly finished with his masterpiece when Karo's Shulchan Aruch arrived in Poland. The Shulchan Aruch created a dilemma for Rabbi Israelis. Publishing the Darke Moshe would reassert Ashkenazic tradition, but exacerbate the chaos of contradictory rulings. He faced a difficult choice, accept Rabbi Karo's conclusions and lose centuries of Ashkenazi traditions, or publish a competing book and risk a schism. Rabbi Israelis instead came up with a third approach. Recognizing that Jewish unity was essential, Rabbi Israelis abandoned the Darke Moshe and instead used his knowledge to create a series of additions to Rabbi Karo's work. Since Karo had called his text the set table, Israelis called his additions the Mapa or tablecloth. For any laws in the Shulchan Aruch that were different for Ashkenazis, Israelis added glosses that explained the variances. Thus, Rabbi Israelis preserved the Ashkenazi tradition without creating disunity. Israelis then printed the Shulchan Aruch with both Karo's original text and his editions, consolidating the two traditions into one book. By abandoning his own book and instead combining his knowledge with Rabbi Karo's, Rabbi Israelis guaranteed the continuation of the Ashkenazi tradition while lending his wisdom to the combined text. This new Shulchan Aruch, complete with its tablecloth, quickly became the definitive text on Jewish law, a text that united Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews. It was studied in yeshivas around the world, and later scholars added additional glosses and commentaries, placing their own dishes on the table that Rabbi Karo set. It remains a guiding light, a constitution of the Jewish people, nearly as important as the Torah or the Talmud.
The story of the Shulchan Aruch represents the best of Jewish tradition. It marks a dedication to scholarship, combined with an appreciation of practicality, a unified text that still incorporates disagreement and a recognition that, at the end of the day, working together makes us all stronger. Can you please narrate with us? Yes. Oh, the, the oh the video? Yeah. I'll I'll be in the in the video I sent in the thing. I'll be in the video of the class will be in it. Great. Um, all right. So let me unpack that a little bit. So you have this is I'm gonna before we continue, I'm gonna go through a vicious cycle that goes on in Judaism. So you have someone that compiles code. The problem with the code is there's no reasons. So you need commentary to give us the reasons. So then there's commentary. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of commentary. What happens when there's too much commentary? There's, it's too abundant. No one knows it all. You need to make a new code. So the Beit Yosef and Rabbi Moshe Israelish, they are the first two to come up with a solution. The Beit Yosef writes commentary over here in the tour telling us what is Jewish, what, what is how he gets the law. Then he makes a spark notes. The Shulchan Aruch. This has both. So this also has the code of Jewish law. So over here is the actual code. So the middle would be the middle is going to be the Beit Yosef right here. And if you see over here, there's those Rashi letters, mm -hmm. a different type of Jewish uh, letters. That is the Israel. Who is he? I thought Carol and Israel was made a combination. Yeah. So this is a combination of the two. So you, it says note. You see over there? So oh, Cairo a gets a separate listing, but... No, Israelis, here's Cairo. This is Rabbi Yosef of Cairo. Okay. Over here is Rabbi Israelis. Well, it's, a different, it's, a, it's a different font, but they're in the middle. So now... It's spark notes like cliff notes? Yeah. Cliff notes, yeah. Yeah, okay. Just, uh -huh. um, spark notes is like a website that has all cliff notes of all the books. <laughs> Okay. This is made for youth, this video. I just thought it was very educational. I've added it. Um, so what's, what happens is, is you have this combination of the two. So you have the code, you have a new code going on. What happens? No one needs to agree with them because they're not Talmud. They're, in the end of the day, they have sources, but their sources are based on conclusions, based on rabbis before them's conclusions, which who said those rabbis were correct? So what happens is, if you see in the Shulchan Aruch over here, the big, it's called the big Shulchan Aruch, you have a top, no, that's not a great page, right here. You have a little bit of them too, and there's so much more on the page. So what's going on? So the answer is, is that you have all these other opinions writing commentary saying, this is a problem, we don't agree with this, we don't agree with that. And they're going through, and it's a whole discussion on the papers, so it actually gets very, very, very complicating. So what happens when something gets very, very complicating? We need another code. So the next code is actually written by, it's called the Shulchan Aruch Harav. There, this, I took an old print to see how it was originally made. This is how it looks on the inside. Very basic. It's actually told today. There's no real commentary written on it. Why not? Because what did he do? He takes it all, and he just pretty much says, "This is a law. This is a law. That's a law." And he writes down. He writes down in the in his footnotes. But he takes all the discussion and common practice of Jews at the time, and 
incorporates that in. This Who is, is he? This is the, fr the first Rebbe of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe. He, wrote the, he writes a, a Shulchan Aruch, but it's also very, very long because he writes reasons. In his Shulchan Aruch, he puts the reasons. There's a rule. Um, you don't get the mitzvah of learning Torah unless you're learning the laws of the Torah with their reasons. So if you learn the Shulchan Aruch of the Alter Rebbe, all the reasons are in there. So it's so much easier to learn because it was in. Does he call his Shulchan Aruch? It's called Shulchan Aruch. It's called the Shulchan Aruch Harav. The Rav the Harav. Um, so this was this is a small Shulchan Aruch. Most of it was burnt in a fire. We have very little of it, actually. Then, continuing on, there's another book I have one over here. This is called the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. This is called the Small Shulchan Aruch. This is how it looks on the inside. It is no reasons. Very basic. The third Rebbe of Chabad, the Tzemach Tzedek, I mentioned him earlier. When the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch came out, it's a new Jewish book. He wanted to read it. He buys it. But he's like, this is not a book to have. So he puts it on the bottom shelf. And then a few years later, his son sees it on a higher shelf and asks his father, why do you pick it, put it up on a higher shelf? He said, what can I do that the Jewish people accepted this book? The problem with having a code is you can't extrapolate law from code because code is very specific. So you have to go back to the source. So that the Beit Yosef, at least he gave us his sources so we could extrapolate not from the wording of his code, but from his sources, we could see how he got through everything he knew. So basically you have this vicious cycle going on. You have a new code. It's only for the moment. So when there's new laws, you need new, there's new questions. That's why when certain things arise, like right now there is a, um, there's something called synthetic meat. I saw a whole article about it before, before the class I'm reading. I read a whole, I started reading an article about synthetic meat, not, not plant-based meat. This is, it's, it's, they grow the cells and make real meat. Can you eat that with cheese? They take cells of meat and they grow fake meat through, and they, they grow fake meat, but it's, it's, it's cells of a cow. They grew the meat from cells of a cow. They grow it in a factory. They grow it in a factory, not in, a in like a lab. Mm -hmm. And now, can that meat be eaten with cheese? Because it's based, it's meat-based meat. It's no vegan would eat this, right? Yeah. But is it considered meat or not? So most rabbis hold not, but it's, there's no consensus about that. In 100 years from now, there might be consensus. When electricity came out, are you allowed to use a microphone? On Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Now nobody uses a microphone. But at the time, people had to figure that out. When Coca-Cola was invented, I think there's a rabbi, his name was... You can't. Um, look... And the rabbi say that... Look at page... One second. Look at page 150. You have all these questions. So Atlantin, there's a rabbi, Tobias Geffen. He writes a whole article. Is Coca-Cola kosher? Thank God it is, by the way. Otherwise, how would we get diabetes? <laughs> Where is it? Like, yeah, page 150. Yeah, you see this map with all these questions everywhere? So look at Johannesburg. Look at the map of the world Johannesburg. This is a great question. What blessing is chocolate? We all make charcoal. But first you have to learn how chocolate's made if you want to know what the blessing is. So you have this all responses, and then eventually you have code. So you also have these mini codes that have been made throughout history. Like the laws of brachot, the laws of kosher. You have these small books people put out, but a code encompassing the whole Jewish law since the kids of Shulchan Aruch, there's never been a book so expansive like this one the kids yeah this goes is through that, everything is that generally agreed upon by all the war yes ideas? yes generally we there is this one for instance sometimes there are different some minor details are not agreed upon but generally it's agreed upon so throughout history 
the rabbis will argue, and then the next generation there'll be a consensus about the matter. Right now, there's a. I'll just tell you a good, a great example of this in the city of Crown Heights, Brooklyn. They they put an eruv. An eruv is a mechanism to allow you to carry on Shabbat. A lot of the rabbis don't agree with that. If you think it's not kosher, it's not possible. So you have this whole back and to allow you to carry something called an eruv. So. I don't know what a carry is. It's a carry to carry. You can't. I, I don't carry on Shabbos. You can't carry anything. Okay. You can't take it back. The city of of make a marking on the side of on the street, then you can't. The urging of Chabad put an arrow. Yes. So the Jews who go to the Chabad house on Canwood Street and Agora Hills can walk and carry and push. Baby cars and so Yes. So that's very common in Jewish communities, but some sometimes so got sometimes there's discussion. So then eventually it gets right now there's there's no consensus, but there will be consensus probably eventually either at one point we'll decide it's kosher, it's not kosher. There'll be a certain consensus as time moves on. Whoever has the stronger facts, usually truth lives on forever. So whoever gets closer to this, the facts will have truth. So I want to go into a uh, one sec. I'm just getting clarity. So for babies, you can't carry a baby on Shabbat? No, not outside of your property. So they made it in the Crown Heights, like the private, the property is everything together. Like, yeah, you're not out of the house. I heard about that. I but no one, but not most people don't use it because there's no consensus about it yet. Yes, Alan, you had a question? Here's a quick question. Is Ricklis's book, um, was that, is that found anywhere? Or I know he hit it somewhere, it's, right? Yes. It, uh, under the tour, I showed you the first book I showed you with the Bet Yosef on the side. He writes a lot shorter. It's on the bottom, the Darche Moshe, and then it. And then he incorporate. It's all incorporated in. If you buy, no, if just, you have a big. Did, did he, his side. book that he wrote, though, he hid it, right? Or did, didn't he hide it somewhere? No. no, he didn't hide it. Okay. Not the Darche Moshe, but I think you no. Know, his original Shulchan Aruch, because he was writing a code of Jewish law as well, that he hid and that we don't have. But, um, but um, the, this, this. This video, honestly, is a bit oversimplified. There's some things which I, I don't think are factually correct in there. But for the general picture, it was great. Yeah, the picture. Uh, yeah. I've been studying the Aden Steinsaltz. Talmud. Edition of the Talmud. Yeah. Is that, where does that fit in? That's a, a commentary on the Talmud. That's a commentary. That's just his opinion. On Talmud. Yeah. But... but it, well, compared to the kids from Shul, oh, it's totally that's apples and oranges. That's okay. different, um, different genre in general. All right, so I want to get into a very, very interesting discussion of halachic discussion. So you have something called the pekuach nefesh principle. I am holding right now on page. I skipped a lot of this course, the inside of the course. I'm holding right now on page, um, one sixty. Yeah, the Pekuach Nefesh principle. The Pekuach Nefesh principle is that there are certain things, you know, there's a certain, what's the value of a Jewish life? So let's look at text five. What's the value of a Jewish life? That God, text five says, God created a human in his image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. So a man is created in the image of God. Let's go right away to text six. It says as follows. How were the Ten Commandments given? Five on one tablet, five on the other tablet. One tablet, and on one tablet, it says, I am the Lord your God. On the opposite, on, on the opposite 
on the other tablet. It says, do not murder. This teaches us anyone who spills blood, the Torah considers it as if he diminished the statue, the, the stature of the Almighty. Um, basically, this is killing a Jewish life is, that, that's pretty crazy. It's as if you're um, kind of killing God in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. So that's the value of a Jewish life in regards to one killing another person, a fellow. Now let's continue. It says, Ashmartim is the next, the next uh, text eight, text five. All right. I should be going now with the slideshow. Text seven, it says as follows. Text seven, it says, this is from the Talmud. It says, you shall keep my statutes and my laws, which a person shall do and live with them. I am gone. Sorry, it's not from the Talmud. This is from Leviticus. It's This is what it says. So what do we learn from this? In text eight, that's from the the. The Torah. Now the Talmud is a Talmud learned from this. It learns as follows. With all transgressions of the Torah, if a person is told transgress, so you shall not be killed, they should transgress rather than be killed. For the Torah states, live by them, not die by them. God wants us to be alive. So a great example for this, if someone has a heart attack on Shabbos, um, you should call the ambulance. Um, don't say, oh, Chavez. It's actually, if someone does that, they're an idiot and they are actually, um, it's a major transgression because you're supposed to live, not supposed to die. So now as a result of this, as a result of this, here's the next law. Now that we know that you, Judaism wants us to live or a living religion wants us to live for God, not to die for God. Here comes a very, very interesting law. Text nine, it's a Mishnah. It says as follows. If a collapsed building falls on someone on Shabbat, even if it is doubtful whether they will, they are there or they are not there. And furthermore, it is doubtful whether they are alive or dead. We must clear the rubble heap from them. If the person is found alive, we continue clearing the rubble. So what happens? A building collapses. And this is someone that goes to shul once a week. And, or this is a guy that goes to one week to one shul, one week to other shul. His house collapses. So now nobody knows if he went to shul that week. So they go, one shul, they say, here his house collapsed. They should go, they should start digging to try to find him. Maybe his body's there because maybe if he's alive, this is worth it to break Shabbos in order to find him. And let's say they start finding him and they realize he's alive. They should continue digging to make sure to get him out. So now the Talmud asks a very, very interesting question. Look at text 10. The Talmud asks, the Mishnah states, if the person found alive, we continue clearing the rubble. Isn't this obvious? This needs to, so it answers, this needs to be stated in order to tell us that we continue our efforts, even if the case, the person is mortally wounded and can only live a short while. Let us say the guy will live an extra hour mm-hmm. if we pull him out of the rubble, or he'll die in the next five minutes. What do we do? Do we break Shabbos for that or not? So actually, Jewish law will tell us they can pull him out even if we give him a little bit of extra life, because life is that important. Mm-hmm. So this is the importance of life in Judaism, because God warned us, God is alive, and we're in the image of God, so we are supposed to be alive. Let's continue. Now, let's take this principle a step further. Text 11. This is from the Rif. Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, he writes as follows. He says, a dying person has the legal status of a living person in every respect, as it is written. 
not until the silver cord snaps. One who, who touches a dying person in any way that hastens their death is a murderer. Whoa. The value of life is so extreme that even if someone's for sure going to die, and if you, let's say, put their hand, you close their eyes, they'll just die. In movies, the guy's dying, and the, the son says by their father and puts the eyes down. That, that is considered murder, according to Torah. You're a murderer if you do that, even though the person is for sure going to die. And now, based on the value of life. So this is all because of, I just want to point out, we're learning all these different laws from one base concept. And now these are all the laws that can be extrapolated as a result of this. So now look at text 12. Here's a story. A person comes before Rava. There's a story in the Talmud. A person comes before Rava and says as follows. The ch chief, the, the chieftain of my village said to me, kill so-and-so, and if you do not do so, I will kill you. Rava said to him, let yourself be killed rather than kill your, than, than you should kill. Why do you think that your blood is redder than theirs? Perhaps the person, the blood of that person is redder. So let's unpack this a little bit. But isn't it also a halacha that if someone rises up to kill you, rise up and kill him first? That's Rambam. Yes, that's actually in the Talmud as well. well just that it's just not wrong passive. No, because over here, over here, how are you going to save your own? So if you could kill the chieftain, go ahead and do that. Yeah. But we're not, we're obviously talking about that's not an option. He has two options. Let's like go throughout history. You have two options. Either kill your fellow Jew, or we will kill you. They have kill, a gun to his head. Kill the, the guy making the threat. No, so they have a gun to his head. And they say, either, they have, he has seven guns to his head. And he says, either you shoot that person, or we're going to kill you. So now, should he shoot that person and survive? Shoot, or shoot the criminal. What if there, what if that's not an option? Then he can kill you. Anyway. At least you do something good before you go. All right. I'm so, just passively say, okay, kill me. Yeah. So first of all, the right to bear arms. That's what Rambam says. Rambam says, rise up and kill him before. That's kill if you him. have the opportunity to do so. This is a case we don't have the opportunity. This is a very specific case. Um. So what what goes on over here? So Rashi explains the case a little bit. Let's look in text thirteen. This whole blood is redder. What does this mean? So Rashi, he's a commentary on the Talmud. He says as follows. Rabbi is saying, your premise is that every mitzvah is set aside in order to preserve a life. So you think that also this mitzvah, i.e. the prohibition against murder, should be set aside in order to preserve your life. But this transgression is different from other transgress transgressions in that in any case, there will be loss of life. The Torah only allowed the mitzvot to be set aside because of the preciousness of a Jewish life. But who says your life is more precious to God's eyes than the other person's life? Perhaps that person's life is more precious, which the result that a transgression will be committed and his life will also be lost. So that's what Rava is telling him, that Kuach Nefesh is great, that's only if you're the only life at, at stake. But if you're going to actively kill someone else, someone else as a result of your decision, you're actively killing someone else with your own hands, that is wrong. Yes. In the case of an abortion, if it's going to kill the mom, the mom 
Yes, without a question. In the appendix, we don't get into this, but I think it gets into it a little bit. I'm not going to get into it tonight. Um, so let us continue. So we have a... All of this is cool. Yes, um, we took that original principle, and then we're going to apply it, and we're going to get more and more abstract. Ron, right now I'm, I'm getting more and more abstract as we go, if you don't realize. I'm trying to show you how far you can stretch this principle, and the more farther you go, the more controversial it's going to get. So over here, we say that you're not allowed, if you were given the option to kill or be killed, you are not allowed to kill in order to survive. Now, the Talmud gives a very, text 14, the Talmud gives a very, very interesting story. Story goes as follows. Two people are traveling. One of them has a jug of water. If they both drink, both will die of thirst. If only one drinks, he will, he will make it a settled place. He'll survive. Ben Petora expounded, better. He expounded, better that both should drink and die then one should witness the death of another, of the other. But then Rabbi Kiva came and taught, the Torah states, your brother shall live with you. Your life comes before the life of your fellow. So now we see this principle gets into an argument because it's a pretty abstract case. You're walking down the streets, you're walking down, you're in the desert and you have a jug of water. It's exactly 24 hours worth of water. You have 24 hours of walking to go. So you have two people. So if both of you drink, you both die. If one of you drink, you one, one of you will survive. Another one will die. So um, the halacha is like Rabbi Akiva, which Rabbi Akiva says, um, your life comes first. So the question is, how is this different than our case of the, of the our first case of Relva, the case of the murderer? He says, you kill or I will kill you. Why is this different? So, Akiva sounds very much like Rambam. So here, he, right now, there's the from the Shita Mikubetes, um, text 15. He'll explain the difference. Regarding the case of two travelers, where the law is that one who has the water may drink in order to save their own life, based on the principle, your life comes before the life of your fellow, it would seem, however, that if one of them grabbed the water away from the other one and drank it, causing the other to die, that person is guilty in the eyes of heaven. He's a murderer. Wait, you're saving your own life? By actively, I have a jug of water. So if right. you steal it from me in order to save your own life, and, and, and in the end I die, you are a murderer. That's completely... Okay. I'm living. You're yeah, you're you're a that is the definition of a that's the worst type of jerk you could be. You kill someone in order to survive. Right. You are that's that's not a great that's not a great what's your life worth at that point? You you're a juggle. A great. So if you're if the, you're a murderer at the end of the day, and also you could you could live as a result, I'm sure there's a lot of like you're a murderer. You, you did save yourself, but you have to be a murderer because you stole my jug of water. Right. So that person will be guilty in the eyes of heaven. As the principal, you should not think, think that your blood is redder. Why, why do you think your blood is redder would apply to this case? I want to survive. I want my water. So basically, we see a very interesting principle. 
when you are taking action, you're not allowed to take action in order to survive, to kill someone else. When you're taking action, you see in Jewish law, I'm not allowed to actively kill you to survive if you're not a threat to my life. You're not a direct threat to my life. If you are a threat, then, then I can kill you. If you're not a threat to my life, I'm not allowed to take action to kill you. Right. So, but if I'm allowed to be passive and allow you to die, if that's going to allow me to live, meaning, let us say, with the jug of the jug of water, I happen to have water. So if I don't give you, I'll survive and you will die. Right. So I'm passively allowing you to die, and that is okay. That is okay. So now, as a result of this principle, if we go to text 16. Love it. Yes. I just have a quick question. So if you decide that you want to give the other person water because you don't want to see them die, is that against the halakha or not? Um, and you allow yourself to die and him live? No, if you want to like, split it, if you decide you want to split it because you don't... And both die? You feel bad about wrong. it. You feel bad about it. That'd be wrong. Okay. That'd be wrong. But you, can you give it to him? Um, no. You could. You. There is such a thing of Messiras Nefesh that you could... Um, if you, for whatever reason you want to sacrifice your own life for the second person, so that possibly could be allowed, but definitely um, that if you have water, you want to give it to me because you feel I'm younger and I have more of a life ahead of me. Um, that um, that's, uh, that is an option, but you cannot, um, I definitely would not be in, if we were in the scenario together, Alan, I would definitely not be allowed to grab the water from you. And as well as if we split it, there's no, that would be not allowed either. Wait, you split, so you have the general water before I take it, or if we split, you have half, I have half. We both die. How are you going to die if you're drinking water? Because we have another 12 hours to go, and there's only one cup of water. So we both split the cup 50-50. We're both going to die of thirst. So if I take the cup from you, push you away, drink the water, I live, you die. You're a murderer. But I live because I have the water. Great. Mm -hmm. I win. Yeah, great. So you 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 survived being a murderer. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying it's a, it's a very, you, did, you survived immorally. That's a very immoral thing you did, though. That's an unnoble thing to do. Um, so if if Generally, people that their lives are worth, uh, generally people that live straightforward lives are not, in these moments, are not afraid of death. Um, mm -hmm. When someone, you know, people are always afraid of death when they feel their life is worthless. So the more you, it's actually ironic, so the more your wife is worth something, the more you'll be willing to give it up for your fellow person, the less you feel your life is worth, the more you'll you'll end up murdering your friend in order to survive. So if I let you drink the water, if I perish, you live, Could. I die, that sucks. It does. And sometimes we sometimes we humans sacrifice sometimes. And sometimes if I have the water. Really good water. <laughs> All right. Let's um continue. Text 16. So now there's another case. This is in the Jerusalem Talmud. If a group of people are traveling on the road and they encounter heathens who, tell, who say to them, give us one of you that we, may, that we may kill him. Otherwise, we kill you all. Even, all. even all of them, even if all of them will be killed, 
they should not hand over a single Jewish soul. So let's say they say, you guys, you guys, you hand me over one of you guys, we'll kill him. Otherwise, we'll kill all of you. So now. That's why I'm bombed. So now, so now, what do you do? Do you do you kill? Do you the Jews say there's like there's a thousand soldiers around them? Say we'll want to kill one of you, but you say so if they tell one guy, you pick who dies. You pick who dies. We can't do that. But if one guy volunteers himself, he says I'll die for to save everyone. Great. He he just performed the, the mitzvah of Sirif Nefesh, giving up his life for a fellow Jew. He becomes a martyr, but if someone else chooses for him, that's not allowed. You're not allowed to choose, turn someone in, in order to make your fellow Jew die. So now I'm going to veer off. I'm going to veer off. I'm going to veer off topic now. Not off topic. I'm going off script again. So the slideshow is essentially over. Um, actually, I'm going to go here. Uh, okay, so now there's a very, very interesting in the world of academia. There is a very, very interesting case. It's called the one second. There's a very interesting case. It's called the the trolley. The case of the trolley. Thought I had it here. Let me pull it up so I get it exactly right. No um, mistakes. Trolley or the trolley problem. Yeah. So basically, there is a there's a case. There's a trolley going down going down the hill, and there are five people tied down on one track where it's taking its natural course. You could change the course of the trolley through sending it left and it'll kill there's one person tied to that track and you'll end up killing one person instead of the five which one is the right thing to do so in some in some senses of some parts of the kill the five to kill the one is called altruism you just so you're gonna go and you're gonna move you're gonna move the trolley to kill um to kill the five is Called, you know, what political uh, party they are? Deontology. It wouldn't make it does. It, you you don't know, or you do know. You do know. It's one of the the the, the five are the ones you hate. The one is the one you love, or vice versa. What I know. I'm trying to say it doesn't make a difference. So now, there's actually I I when I was in yeshiva, we watched the video about this. How how many people how many people would move the it was a simulation. How many people would move the track to move to kill the one instead of the five? Um, so, what are, what are the blank spaces after one and two going to show? So, there are here are the two, the two halachic precedents are like as follows the two halachic precedents are as follows number one is that you're not allowed to ever take action in order to take someone's life but you're allowed to refrain from save from saving another to save oneself okay so i'm gonna actually just get out of this because this is a different um anyhow so here is here is the about our trolley problem here's an article i found 
that explains a, a halachic response that goes through it. So I'm going to read it word for word. Um, discuss the tribal and based on above halacha. So this halacha, so based on halacha, there's halacha that you just said. If a group of Jews are traveling and a group of non-Jews chance upon them and then hand over one from the group and will kill you all, even if all, even if all will be killed, you may not hand over a soul. So this rabbi, his name is Rabbi Yehuda Waldenberg. He lived in from 1915 to 2006. So he says as follows, that based on the above halacha, that one cannot actively cause a person to die, even if it will save many more. As earlier commentaries explained, that the Talmud statement that one should let himself be killed rather than killed another, for why do you think that your blood is redder is essential, is essentially saying that we cannot fathom the infinite value of a life, be, the infinite value of a life. Thus, we must refrain from taking action. And this and that implies we know how to evaluate one life over another or even many. All we can do is leave it to heaven and follow the Talmudic um, dictum Shev va'al tasa, sit and do nothing, taking a passive tack for any active killing is forbidden. No. So the halakhic answer to the trolley problem would be, let the five die, because you are not God. Sorry, yes, right. you are not God. So, I, mean, I mean, if we exaggerate and said there are a hundred yeshiva boys on the track, Okay. And there's one ISIS person who's a known murderer. Is he is he Jewish? No. If he's not Jewish, then run over him. And also, if he's a murderer, run over him because he deserves to die. Yeah. If someone I deserves, if, no, if someone deserves. Okay, I'm asking you. No, if someone, exceptions. if someone deserves to die, you can actively kill him, or you can actively send him to die. Um, protect someone that doesn't deserve to die. Yeah. Okay. I'm just asking. So okay, it's clear to me. One second. To say would you kill a 